All right, I have 11 o'clock here on my laptop, so I, I guess we'll get rolling with the third session, uh, in which I'd like to talk about the Philistines. Oh. Uh, in which I'd like to talk about the Philistines in text and archaeology. Um, Philistines are near and dear to my heart. As I mentioned a couple of times now, I excavated for about 10, or was it 11 years, love? I don't know, a long time. The Philistine Ashkelon uh, on uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, uh, literally on the coast. If you've got to dig, you just can't do better than this. There's a sea breeze coming in all the time, just like living on the coast. Uh, it's actually kind of miserable. It's always dirty and hot, but it's a good spot. It's beautiful. Uh, so, and then I wrote my PhD dissertation on the, uh, the Philistines in the book of Samuel. So I mentioned that I, I had always wanted to be a, primarily a, a Bible scholar, um, but I also had this experience digging a Philistine city at Ashkelon with Philistine material culture, and most of my experience uh, in archaeology had been in the Philistine period of occupation between around 1200 BC and 600 BC. Uh, so when I was thinking about um, what I wanted to do in the dissertation, it just made sense to study the Philistines in the text of the Bible. So that's what I did. I tried to study the, the ways in which the Philistines are uh, portrayed as literary uh, figures in the, in the book of Samuel, and then asked the question of why are they portrayed that way? What, what motivates those uh, portrayals? Uh, here you have a, a picture of a, uh, what's almost certainly Goliath, although he's, he's partly missing here. Trampling on some uh, some Israelite uh, warriors in the battle of David and Goliath, comes from a mosaic and a, a synagogue dating to the third or fourth century um, A.D. Um, in this third session, what I would like to do is to focus on that second uh, of the three things that I told you that archaeology does. Namely, in, in many ways, it seems to confirm or to uphold stories that we read about uh, in the Bible. Um, I, I don't want you to hear me say that I think archaeology always proves the Bible. As I talked about yesterday, it, it can't. It can't prove every single detail. It can't prove every single story. Uh, there are some, many things that archaeologists simply cannot speak to. I can't prove in this lecture that the battle of David and Goliath happened exactly the way that 1 Samuel 17 says it happened. I can't prove that. I can't prove that the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant as uh, 1 Samuel 4 reports that they did, and then it went back to Ashdod and gave people bubonic plague and killed a bunch of Philistines and they returned it and all this. I can't prove that that story happened. Okay? What I hope to show today is that what we can learn about the Philistines from the Bible plus extra-biblical texts from places like Egypt and elsewhere, plus the archaeological record, makes those stories plausible in history. Okay? Those stories fit, as it were, within what we can know about ancient history. That's what I'd like to, uh, to, to try to articulate today. As I get started, when I say the word Philistine, what comes to mind? Bad guys, yeah, enemies. Say that again. Somebody that doesn't understand art. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Unsophisticated. Savage. Yeah. Goliath, for sure. Right. Uh, who embodies this kind of... Um, I mean, he's a, he's a giant. He's all decked out with the latest technology as far as uh, armor goes. Right? He's, he's very... Uh, um, his whole um, kit, right, is like self-protection with the, with the biggest and the best 
modes of killing people. He's got a spear, he's got a javelin, all these other kinds of things. Okay, most people when they hear the word Philistine say the same things that you just said. They're uncultured, they don't like the arts, right? They don't, these are not people that you're gonna see at the symphony, okay? Uh, people tend to think that they're barbaric, right? That they're just kind of uncouth. They never cut their hair, you know, <laughs> they stink, they don't shave, they just are not well presented. They're stupid or dumb. Uh, they're holders of just commonplace ideas, right? They, they're not thinkers, okay? This is the way we, we think of Philistines as just being kind of dense. You know, they have all these assumptions that are not particularly well considered or well examined. All of this comes, or at least it's, uh, it's represented by the, uh, the 18th century social critic, 19th century, I think, social critic, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew Arnold, uh, who was a British fellow, a poet, an essayist, a, a cultural critic, uh, who wrote a book called Culture and Anarchy. Forgive me, I didn't write down exactly when he published it. I want to say it was mid-1800s. Um, and he divided society into three broad groups of people, and one of them he called Philistines. For Matthew Arnold, Philistines are, um, are people who uh, are materialistic, right? Goliath, who's got all of his materials to, you know, get by with. Narrow-minded, anti-intellectual, don't really value the arts, don't really value the beauty, the finer things in life, okay? Um, I did a dictionary search of a Philistine, and the dictionary defined it as a person, this is just like the Google, this is what came up first on Google. A person who is hostile or indifferent to culture and the arts or who has no understanding of them. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that that's how the ancient Philistines would have seen themselves. Okay. Um, I won't say a whole lot about this, but I, I will show you some examples of Philistine pottery. Uh, it seems to me very, very clear that Philistine pottery is exceedingly more beautiful than Israelite pottery. It's beautifully painted. It's got, uh, my wife actually over here is the, arguably the world's leading expert in Philistine painted pottery. Believe it or not. Yeah, she's a published author on Philistine painted pottery. Uh, and um, so she could tell you more about that than I could. But their, their pottery in the early part of the Iron Age has all these beautiful flowers they paint on it, like lotus blossoms and spirals and chariot wheels, things that look like Crusader crosses. They're, of course, not Crusader crosses because it's BC days, but they look like Crusader crosses. Just beautifully painted black and white and red pottery. Israel never had pottery that was that pretty, ever. Okay? So as far as that goes, actually, they, they were perhaps more refined than, than, than the folks living up in the, in the hill country were. Um, what I'd like to do is to just, just ask the question, well, what does the Bible say about the Philistines? And uh, does that seem to bear out in, in other uh, corpora of data? So one of the things that the Bible says, I'd like to go kind of chronologically from the beginning of Philistines to the end of the Philistines. So, the, uh, when they got to the, to the land of Israel, and I'll say more about this in just a second, in fact, on this slide, they settled there just after 1200 BC at the very beginning of the Iron Age, maybe around 1175. They were foreigners. They, were, uh, they didn't originate in, in the land of Israel. They came from afar. They lived there for about 600 years, and then the biblical text says that they were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II in 604 BC. Okay. So they lived there about 600 years, according to the Bible. Uh, and I'd like to just see, um, does that make sense, given what we see in the archaeological record? What else can we learn about them? The Bible does say, as I just noted, that the, that the Philistines came, um, were, were foreigners originally to the land of Israel. Like, like Israel itself, they were not indigenous to the land, according to the biblical text. So Jeremiah 47 
uh, has this, uh, uh, we'll come back to this text in a little bit, um, but uh, because of the day that is coming to destroy all of the Philistines to cut off uh, from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains, the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Okay, so this indication that the Philistines came from the land of Kaftor. Ezekiel 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Carathites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. If you kind of squint, you can see that that sort of sounds like Crete. Carathites. Okay. Another one, Amos 9, 7. This is the most uh, uh, illuminating of the three I have up here. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor? And the Syrians from Kir? Well, what is, what is God saying to Amos here? He's saying, look, Israel, you're not the only people I brought to the land, right? Just as I brought you up to the land of Egypt, I also brought the Philistines into the land from Kaftor, and the Syrians from the land of Kir. Okay? So the biblical text has this memory of the Philistines being foreign to the, to the land of Israel. They came from this place called Kaftor. They were sometimes remembered as Carathites. Kaftor is almost certainly the island of Crete. Okay? So it has this memory of the Philistines originating somewhere in the Aegean world. Okay? Other people have suggested that maybe Kaftor is Cyprus. For my purposes, it doesn't really matter all that much for this talk. The point is, they didn't originate in the land of Israel. They were immigrants. Okay? Um, that totally bears out uh, within the historical and archaeological record. So uh, at the end, of, somebody mentioned the Trojan War last evening. Uh, and that's part of what I'm about to say. At the, at the end of the late Bronze Age, right around 1200 or maybe just a little after 1200 B.C., there was this major upheaval across basically the entire Mediterranean world. And civilizations that had endured for hundreds of years just very suddenly collapsed. And this led to all kinds of resettlement of peoples around the Mediterranean world. So at this time, the great Mycenaean civilization collapsed. The great Hittite civilization collapsed. The great Egyptian uh, 20th dynasty began to wane, although they uh, collapsed about 50 years after everybody else, and that's going to be important for reasons that I'm going to explain in a little bit. But at around 1200 or just thereafter, there's this collapse of civilization. Scholars debate about what exactly caused this. Was there some sort of a, climac a, a climate change that resulted in uh, uh, hunger? And people, you know, when people are hungry, they tend to fight for food. And so there's all this kind of war. Or was there some sort of uh, something that motivated this economic collapse? That for whatever reason, the bottom just fell out of the economy. There are different ways of parsing through why all of this happened. We don't need to get into that now. What we need to know is that there was, at around 1200 or just thereafter, there was this collapse of Bronze Age civilizations. And that collapse put all kinds of peoples on the move looking for new homes, new security, new opportunities, new resources. Okay? We have a record of this in, oh, that's a bad, she goes, that's a little bit fuzzy, but forgive me. Uh, this is a drawing from uh, the wall of, um, Ramses III's funerary uh, temple called Medinet Habu in Egypt. And what you see here is a bunch of boats. Sorry, it's kind of fuzzy. But you see a bunch of boats with, um, with people on the move, okay, coming to Egypt, looking for a new home. And Ramses III and his Egyptian warriors 
fighting against them, trying to keep them out of their territory. Okay? Ramses even mentions uh, that, um, that, uh, that people had left their islands in the sea and that they had come and, st- and tried to settle in Egypt and that, uh, that he had so overpowered them that he either demolished them or he basically turned them into servants of his Egyptian empire by settling them in fortresses in Canaan. Okay? So he claims that he had settled the Philistines in what became Philistia okay? after he defeated them in war. Here's another very fascinating uh, inscription that was uncovered about 20 years ago at the city of Aleppo. Um, I go back. Whoops, there it is. Aleppo's way up here in the north, uh, on, of, uh, in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean world. You've perhaps heard about it in, in the news in the last several years. There's been very, very uh, serious and damaging fighting there in the Syrian civil war, so it's still an occupied city. Uh, but it was occupied in the ancient world as well. And what you're looking at here uh, is a, uh, a relief carved into the wall of a temple dedicated to a storm god that the ancient city of Aleppo stays to about the 11th or 10th century BC. And the first line, you probably can't see it from, from a distance, but there's uh, hieroglyphic Luvian signs here. Okay? So like it's, there's writing on it. And the first line uh, uh, gives the name and the title of the person who's dedicating this temple to the storm god. And his name is Taika, the hero, Palestinian king. Well, that, that, that language, Palestinian, sounds very, very close phonetically to Philistine, does it not? Well, if I go back to this text, one of the, uh, one of the peoples, they're called sea peoples, that Ramses claimed to have defeated one of these marauding warrior bands trying to migrate across the Mediterranean world looking for a new home, one of, the, one of those tribes of peoples was called the Peleset. Sounds like Palestine, the Hebrew word for Philistine. Here again is the uh, Ramses III uh, mortuary temple. Um, this, is, this is the actual image of, uh, that I showed you in a drawing a minute ago from a distance. You probably can't see it very well. But here you can see this kind of like curved line. That's a boat up front. You can see that there are men hanging over the boats. Here's a guy with a bow and arrow. And there's people falling over the boats and all these kind of things. It depicts a battle scene. Okay? This is Ramses III at around 1180, 1175, plus or minus, uh, waging war on these peoples of the sea, including the Peleset, people that would become the Philistines. Here's what he claims. Uh, this is the text that I mentioned just a minute ago. Uh, so this is, a, uh, this is a, a hieroglyphic inscription dated to around the, the beginning of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the 12th century B.C. So again, something like 1175-ish B.C. Uh, from the Medinet Habu text and reliefs. He says, uh, Ramsey says, the foreign lands made a conspiracy in their islands. Dislodged and scattered by war were the lands altogether. No land could stand before their arms. So he's saying, all these people went all the way around the Mediterranean world, uh, waging war on all these other uh, kings and kingdoms, and these uh, sea peoples, these, uh, these tribes that are marauding and migrating, they were very successful everywhere they went. They went all across the Mediterranean world, and they defeated kings and kingdoms, but not in Egypt. Right? It's very, bomba- uh, not very bombastic. He says, no other land could stand before their arms. Hi, sweet girl. Beginning with Hatti, Kode, Carchemish, Arzawa, and Alasia, that's probably Cyprus, they were cut off 
at one time. There's a break in the text. A camp was pitched in one place with Amuru. They destroyed its people and its land like that which had never come into being. So they were uh, successful against the kingdom of Amuru. They came while the flame was made ready before them forward to Egypt. So they they went on after they had conquered Amuru, this uh, probably a a kingdom in the northeastern uh, Mediterranean area. area. Then they came south to Egypt. They came while the flame was made ready before them forward to Egypt. Their confederation consisting of the Peleset. Notice that term there sounds like Pelishtim, Philistines. The Peleset, the Checker, the Shekelish, the Denyan, the Weshesh. Lands united. They set their hands upon the lands that they might surround the earth. Their hearts were confident and trusting, saying, Our plans will be realized. But then Ramses goes on to say, But I conquered them, right? I demolished them. I made them non existent, basically, is what he goes on to say. Okay, so this text is very important because it tells us that at the time of Ramses III, at the beginning of the 12th century BC, there were these bands of tribes on the loose migrating in, uh, both by land and, prob- and by sea, probably both, looking for new homes coming from the west in the Aegean world, modern Greece, perhaps eastern, uh, modern day, or western modern-day Turkey, moving to the east looking for a home. They eventually come into Egypt, fight against Ramses III, and Ramses claims to have defeated them. One of the people that one of the groups that was doing that was called the Pelesset, which again reminds us of the Philistines. Yeah. So were they waiters, or were they Oh, brother, that's the that's the million dollar question, right? Uh, it, it might be both, okay? And it kind of depends on which. Um, so there's all these images depicting this, okay? And some of the images depict these tribes coming as warriors in boats, and they've got their weapons and all these others. But then there are accompanying images that depict families on the move, like being pulled in like little ox carts with children and like stuff, right? Like they're try- just trying to find a homeland. And so it might be some of both, right? That they're, that they're marauding and raiding and, and waging war, partly because they're trying to carve out some ground for themselves. Yeah. Uh, but that's a million dollar question. Scholars debate how exactly this all played out, whether the primary migration was by sea or by land and, and, and all these kinds of questions. The point that I would just like to emphasize is that people are on the move, right? And one of these people that fights against the Egyptians is this tribe called the Peleset, okay? Which is, let's call them proto-Philistines. Here's another text, uh, the Papyrus Harris, uh, which is not written by Ramses III. It was written, uh, or at least uh, uh, required to be written. It was patronized by Ramses IV, the son of Ramses III. But it celebrates the heroic deeds of Ramses III. Okay, so it was written as a sort of praise text of all the great deeds that Ramses III did in his life. Uh, and it was commissioned by his son, Ramses IV. And one of the, it's written, though, in the voice of Ramses III. And one of the things that it praises Ramses III for doing was vanquishing these sea peoples, including the Peleset, and then settling them in fortresses in the southern uh, coast of modern-day Israel. So he says, I caused Egypt to burgeon with many classes, consisting of butlers of the palace, great nobles, the army, and chariotry, numerous like hundreds of thousands, Sheridan and Kehek, those are tribes that were presumably among the sea peoples, no end of them, and retainers and tens of thousands of subjects of Egypt. I caused all the frontiers of Egypt to be extended. Okay, so I expanded the territory. And, this is the important part, I overthrew those who intruded upon them, i.e. upon my, my lands. I slew the Denyan, that's a tribe of these marauding sea peoples on the move, from their islands, the Cheker and the Peleset being made into ashes, and the Sheridan and Weshesh of the sea were made into what had never been, captured at one time and brought as plunder to Egypt like the sand of the shore. I settled them in strongholds bound by my name. 
Okay, so what is Ramses claiming here? He's saying, I went to battle with all of these marauding tribes at around 1175. I destroyed them. I vanquished them. I, I won the battle. I killed most of them. I made them into non-existent. Uh, I made them into a pile of ashes. But some of them I took captive and I settled into fortresses bound by my name. Okay, I settled them into my own lands. Well, as it turns out, at around 1175, and all of this is happening, I mentioned all of these uh, great late Bronze Age civilizations are, are, have either collapsed or are in the process of collapsing, but not Egypt quite yet. Okay? At this time, Egypt is still quite strong. And Egypt has fortresses going all the way up uh, through the, the land of modern-day Israel, where they can control routes that go through here and have access to these very fertile uh, fields along the southern coast. And so what uh, scholars have supposed is that Ramses settled the Philistines, the Peleset, into regions in the southern Levant, here in these cities that became Philistine cities, and then he sort of hemmed them in. He established a sort of a ghetto where they were settled here, and then there was a sort of ghetto that was blockaded by Egyptian fortresses. We actually have uncovered some of these Egyptian fortresses in archaeology. Up here, at a site called Tel Bor, there's an Egyptian fortress. Tel Akish seems to have had one. There was several, one, one down here uh, along the southern coast. So it seems like uh, he hemmed them in into what became sort of a Philistine ghetto. Does that make sense? He settled them in his fortresses. One of the, uh, one of the theses that I have argued for, in fact, I've published on this, is that this is how the Philistines became an ethnicity. Okay? That they, um, that they left wherever their homeland was just after 1200 BC. They migrated, whether by land or by sea, or some of both, to the Levant. They fought against Egypt, as Ramses III says. And there's no question those texts are bombastic and a bit propagandistic. But still, there's got to be some historicity to them. Right? That they then settled, or are settled, pick whether it's active or passive here, uh, in the southern Levantine coast. And then they, this becomes Philistia because this becomes their homeland, right? Whether they took it by force of themselves uh, in a victory, as some have argued, or whether uh, they landed here because Ramses III settled in there is maybe a secondary question for the scholars. My, my sense is that, that Ramses III probably actually won and settled in there. Then they were hidden in on all sides so that they were pushed into this little ghetto so that what you have here, starting at around 1175, as a new Philistine homeland, Comprised of people that had migrated from the west, right, uh, from places like Mycenae, Crete, Cyprus, plus whoever had lived here some before, some in, indigenous uh, Canaanite folks, uh, who over the course of about 50 years, because they were uh, put in this, uh, in this ghetto, went through a process of ethnogenesis such that they became Philistines. So, so far, we've seen that uh, the biblical record remembers that the Philistines were not indigenous to the land of Israel, that they were foreigners, that they'd come from afar from this land of Kaftor. We've also seen that the biblical text, uh, that non-biblical texts can seem to speak into that a bit with these texts that we've looked at from ancient Egypt and also from Aleppo, right? There's this uh, king up here in, in Aleppo who seems to have had this Palestinian uh, title, right? So he seems also to have been part of this wave of peoples moving across the Eastern Mediterranean. And then finally, they come into the five major cities. Okay, 
The Philistines are known as inhabiting five major cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, along the coast, and then Ekron and Gath, a little bit uh, inland. Um, the only way, really, that we can know that these are Philistine cities is because the text tells us that they're Philistine cities. Right? If we didn't have the Bible or other texts that tell us that these cities were occupied by Philistines, we might be able to identify through archaeology that there is a, a unique material culture in these five cities. Right? They all have kind of the same pottery. They build their houses in the same way. But we wouldn't know that those were Philistine cities. Okay? We need texts to tell us that they're Philistine cities. And thanks be to God, we have them. 1 Samuel 6, 17 tells us that these are the five major cities associated with the Philistines. Okay? Um, they did have what we might call secondary cities, like satellite cities, that kind of were under the orbit of these five major cities. But these five major cities are sometimes referred to as the Philistine Pentapolis, five and polis, right? The Pentapolis, the five-city Philistine territory. That is up until about 830 BC. At 830 BC, you know, anybody know anything significant happens at 830 BC? Sorry, it's not a trick question. Hazael, king of Aram, Damascus, comes, and he wages war. Against, uh, against Israel and Judah. Uh, we, and we have texts about this. This is talked about in the Bible. Um, and we also have uh, extra biblical texts that talk about this. But after 830 BC, curiously, Gath is never mentioned in association with the Philistines ever again. So it goes from being a pentapolis to, what, a tetrapolis? A tetrapolis? Okay. Four cities, right? Without Gath. Uh, uh, take a look at Zephaniah 2.4, which probably dates to the end of the 7th century. Uh, for Gaza shall be deserted, Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. There's no mention there of Gath anymore. Right? Same thing uh, appears in Amos 1 and Zechariah 9.5. I won't quote those to you, but there again, those are texts that post-date Hazael's campaign in it, around 830, maybe 833 or so B.C., Hazael came into the land uh, in 830-ish B.C., and he destroyed the city of Gath. This is a picture of the city of Gath from the top of the tell. Okay? And you notice going more or less horizontally, although it's a little bit of an arc, uh, arc shape, you see this kind of brown strip that runs through the middle of the scene? That's the remnants of a moat that King Hazael dug when he laid siege to the city of Gath at around 830. Uh, archaeologists have dug part of this. I, in fact, myself dug at this city for uh, four weeks in 2006. In a great time. Uh, I didn't dig the moat, though. But they dug through the city, and they dated it very confidently to the era of Hazael's campaign against the city of Gath. Okay? So in 830, uh, Hazael destroys the city of Gath. We can read about this in 2 Kings 12, 17. Uh, so 2 Kings 12, 17 says, At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. And that's all the Bible has to say about this. Okay? That's it. Um, after uh, after um, Hazael destroyed it, um, he, didn't, he does not appear to have settled it for Aram Damascus. Right? He simply destroyed it, presumably because he was upset with the people of Gath, uh, and left it abandoned for a spell. And then Rehoboam, king of Judah, uh, took the city and resettled it so that it became a Judahite city, and it was never again understood to be a Philistine city. So, after the campaign of, of Hazael, we don't have a Philistine pentapolis anymore. We now only have four cities that are associated with the Philistines. Does that make sense? Okay. Those other four are going to be associated with Philistines uh, until 604 BC, but I'll get to that. Okay. What other evidence do we have that the Philistines were a migrant? Sorry. I just want to make, you said that the Egyptians were 
The, I, I said that Ramses III claims to have defeated this tribe called the Peleset, which I see as the sort of proto-Philistines, right? That's where they got their name. And he claims to have defeated them and then settled them in his strongholds, presumably in southern Canaan. Yeah, I, yeah, perhaps as a, as a way of um, perhaps of serving his kingdom. Uh, so one one scholar argued that um, well, there had been another campaign by a previous Egyptian king uh, named Merimtah at the end of the 13th century, like in 1209. Uh, in fact, uh, King uh, Merimtah uh, wrote a stele celebrating this campaign in 1209, and it's in that in that inscription. A stele is like a stone. Tablet, a large stone tablet that's got an inscription on it. And that stone tablet has the first ever mention of, of Israel, dated 1209 BC. But somewhat ironically, he claims to have fought against Israel and made him non existent. And he says, and now his seed is not. Well, check it out. As it turns out, Israel had quite a long history after the Merneptah stale, after Merneptah claimed to have just made Israel non existent. But anyway, my point is. I see one scholar make the claim that in the wake of Merneptah's campaigns around Ashkelon and, and southern Canaan, that the population had been just so, so decimated that there was nobody there to, to do the farming. And so when uh, Ramses defeated the sea peoples, including the Peleset and some of the other, these others, he, he, he settled them there because that land was just too fertile for nobody to not farm it. Right. And so then they would have been contributories, contributors to the, uh, yeah, to the Egyptian economy. So in, in around, um, well, I'm going to get to this in just a minute, but the, this period of Philistine hegemony in, in the southern Levant uh, it, it went on for about 50 years longer than any of the other kingdoms that, that came to an end at around 1200. So, so the Egyptians, did I say Philistine hegemony? I meant to say Egyptian. Okay, So the Egyptians stayed strong until about 1150 or 1140. And while they were still strong, they were able to keep the Philistines hemmed in in these cities for about 50 years. After 1150 or 1140, the, Phil the Egyptian kingdom was then weakened, and that enabled the Philistines to spread out to the north, east, and south a little bit. They became a bit more independent. Okay? And as I'm going to say here in a minute, it's in that context that the biblical stories come to life. right? Because you can see as the Philistines, if once that sort of imaginary wall comes down, right, uh, patrolled by these Egyptian fortresses that kind of hem them into this ghetto. Once that is removed, then the Philistines are free to move in these directions, and that's going to create conflict with the people that live up here, namely the Judahites and Israelites. Okay. Does that answer your question? Okay. So what other evidence do we have that the Philistines were a migrant community? Again, I'm just trying to show you that the biblical narrative about the Philistines seems to carry a lot of merit uh, according to the archaeological record. Well, what other stuff can we look at besides texts uh, whether from the Bible or from ancient Egypt, to, uh, to see that the Philistines were immigrants. But we can look at pottery. We can look at uh, uh, the way they built uh, the vessels that they cook in, uh, the stuff that they ate, uh, the way they built their houses, the way they worshipped and who they worshipped, whom they worshipped. Uh, and Philistine names. I'm going to flesh each of these out. But what I want you to see from this slide is that all of this stuff, starting at around 1175, when, uh, when Ramses claims to settle the Philistines in what becomes Philistia, 
all of a sudden we see this great new material culture show up as if new people are living here, right? It would be as if all of a sudden uh, a whole bunch of folks from, goodness, I don't know, Kenya <laughs> showed up in Huntington, West Virginia and set up like a little community there. Their material culture would just look different than what had preceded it, right? They'd be eating different foods. They would have different pottery. They might build their house in different ways. Their jewelry would be different. There's just all these material cultural signs that a new people has moved in and there's this new culture living there. Okay, let's take a look briefly at Philistine material culture. Uh, here are a couple of specimens of uh, Philistine vessels. You've got a, uh, what's called a bell-shaped bowl in the back and then some sort of like a horned uh, vessel uh, in, in the front. Uh, this is called Philistine monochrome. Sometimes it has different, different names. Some people call it Philistine wine or, or what have you. What I'd like to underscore here is, uh, I don't have a slide to show it to you, but if I held, especially this bowl, if I put it side by side with a bowl from Mycenaean Greece about 100 years earlier, you would be struck by how similar they are. Okay? What does that suggest? It suggests that the people that are making these bowls are imitating traditions that they knew in their Aegean homeland. Okay? What's different about it, though, is it started around 1175, whereas prior to that, places like Ashkelon had all these imported wares from places like Mycenaean Greece. We actually have at Ashkelon uh, vessels that were imported throughout the Late Bronze Age from Greece. But once the Philistines show up around 1175, partly because those trade networks are just no longer operative, people start to make locally made imitations of older Aegean-style vessels. That makes sense? So they're imitating their traditions from their homeland, but they're doing it with local clays. Right? Geologists can look at the substance of the clay and figure out where it was mined and all this kind of stuff. But it recalls those older traditions from their western homeland. A little later, about 50 years later, they add a second color. So I mentioned the previous one was, was monochrome. Now this is bichrome. Okay? You can see how they're now painting in red and black. Okay? Sometimes you get a white, sort of a white base. It's called a white slip. Um, this is Philistine bichrome pottery. What's interesting is that this pottery is never found anywhere except for those five cities. Okay? I mean, maybe. Maybe there's a shirt, a pot shirt or two from some other city nearby. But basically, the Philistine monochrome is never found anywhere other than those five major Philistine cities. Okay? It's almost as if this was the pottery they had on the boats right, when they came over. That's not quite true because we know that it was locally made because the clay that they, uh, that they made it from uh, is, was locally harvested. But after about 1145 or 1150, we start to see these bichrome wares spreading much farther afield, right? Up into cities that are traditionally Israelite, up to the north, the cities that had not originally been Philistine, indicating that the Egyptian ghetto has kind of been lifted, right? Those, the Egyptians have retreated, and now the Philistines are able to get out of that core block of land with those five cities and kind of spread out farther afield, looking for new resources, new opportunities, new farms to field, all these kinds of things, right? Trying to gain access to new roads. And it's in that context that stories like the battle of, uh, like the battles that between David and the Philistines make all kinds of sense, right? As the Philistines start to encroach on territory that had previously been Israelite territory, you can imagine, imagine how some skirmishes are going to arise as a result of that. Okay? So this uh, bichrome uh, pottery we see um, throughout ancient Israel, not in huge numbers, but enough to tell us that, that those borders uh, were somewhat more fluid at that point. Okay? Is that just two colors or is that some Yeah. 
two colored, yeah. Not to Philistine bichrome, not to be confused with Phoenician bichrome, which is not the same thing, yeah. We should perhaps get more creative with our nomenclature, but they didn't ask me. Um, other evidence that the Philistines were uh, foreign imports to, the, to, to uh, the land of Israel. What you're looking at here is, um, is a cooking jug. Okay? This is a totally different kind of vessel for cooking than had ever been used in the Levant prior to the Philistine era. Okay? It does, however, have antecedents in the Aegean world in the late Bronze Age. Diet. All of a sudden, at around 1175... I should not say 1,300, I should say 1,200. All of a sudden, around 1175, plus or minus, people started eating pork at the Philistine cities. As you know, pork was strictly prohibited right, by the Old Testament law. Israel uh, was, was forbidden from, from consuming pork. Not so much in Philistia. Okay. Philistines ate pork, not a ton, but quite a bit. Right? At, at one point in that crime, it represented 25% of their meat diet. It's not an insignificant amount. The Bible never makes the connection, but it seems to me that it's totally plausible that a key reason why uh, Israel was pro prohibited from eating pork was the fact that their neighbors to the west did eat pork, and this was a means by which they differentiated themselves. Right? We, Israelites, don't eat pork because the Philistines do, and we're called to be different. Right? The Bible never makes that point, okay? but it's a good explanation for why, why the, the, the Old Testament would prohibit uh, pork. Other things that are new at around 1175 in Philistia is architecture. Okay? Uh, you start to get things like um, raised hearths. Now remember I showed you that cooking vessel a minute ago. Well, presumably they would have put that on a little sand, uh, lit a fire here, and then and made little stews or whatever in these, uh, in these um, little cooking vessels. Uh, they start to use uh, benches in their, uh, in their houses. That's not totally unprecedented, but certainly in Philistia, in Philistia at around uh, 1175 or so, that becomes very, very common. Okay? Um, notice that they're not using the four-room house, pillar house model anymore. Okay? Uh, you don't see, you do see one pillar here, right, where they're propping up a second story or, or, or the roof, but you don't see a row of them. Okay? So it's just a completely different domestic, uh, a completely different model of domestic architecture. That does have antecedents in the Aegean world, if not in the, uh, in the Levantine world. This is a fascinating image. Uh, in that same room, so this is the same building. Okay, so this is, a, this is a room with a hearth. The next slide is this room right here. So keep, a, keep, a little, keep your eye out on this little bin right here. Okay? So I'm going to take this room and see more of it and rotate it 90 degrees. Make sense? What do you see here? You see this doorway with this little storage bin, and then against this wall, you have some very, very strange feature, right? Some sort of an installation that has knobs, four knobs around the corners of it, covered in plaster. Um, I was blessed to be here when that was excavated, uh, and, um, and yet people were totally befuddled as to what it is, right? It does seem pretty clearly to have something to do with religion, okay? Uh, found next to it was a cluster of uh, a faience grapes. Faience is kind of like a glass material. It's made out of sand. Uh, and there were a number of, of artifacts.
artifacts that uh, enabled us to conclude that this seems to be some sort of like a little devotional room for a, for a Philistine right around 1175. This room dates to the first immigration of Philistine settlers in Ashkelon. Okay, so right after they get there, they settle, they build this house, and in this house, they have this little cultic installation. Okay, is it an altar? I don't know. It's not totally clear. It never been burnt upon. Right? There's no signs that, ever, that there had ever been fire on it, but it seems to be some sort of like a little devotional room. Okay. Uh, so it represents uh, some sort of new mode of religion, okay? Philistine religion. New uh, technologies and weaving and textile production. I know that looks like a bunch of clumps of dirt to you, and well, it is, okay? But this is the stuff that archaeologists get paid for. So um, what you're looking at here is a series of, um, of loom weights made out of unbaked clay, okay? Loom weights are ubiquitous in the ancient world, right? People needed, uh, they needed to weight their looms because the way the, the looms work is you run these strings over a bar and you gotta weight them on the other side so that they don't come, you know, back over top of you. Uh, and so you would tie these weights to them. What's curious about these ones is that they're, they're made totally differently. In, in previous eras, they've been made out of stone. They usually had a hole in them. Or if they had been made out of clay, they were at least baked, like fired, so that they became like a pottery vessel, very, very strong and stable and enduring. Not these. They're just clumps of mud, right, that people had just put together. It's just totally different things. It's never been, uh, it's really never appeared in, in Israel until the Philistine era. Okay. And then, last but not least... As the Philistines come, we have attestations of Greek names. Uh, do you remember the name of the Philistine king? Is that up there? Okay, well, that's cheating. Uh, when David is on the lamb from Saul, he goes and he tries to take refuge uh, in Philistia. And he goes and sees the king of Gath, whose name is Achish. Okay. That name is almost certainly, uh, it's not Semitic in its origin. It's, it's Greek in its origin. Um, and fascinatingly, um, so is Goliath, is also a not Semitic uh, uh, name. Fascinatingly, we have this inscription. It's called the Ekron inscription. Ekron, as you'll recall, was one of those five major Philistine cities. Uh, this is a little bit fuzzy, but uh, this was a dedicatory inscription inside a temple to a goddess whose name is Pedagaya or something like that. The reading's a little bit iffy. Pedagaya is not a Semitic goddess. Okay? She has, she's never been heard of in the Levant or in the Semitic ancient Near Eastern world before. She seems to have Western Aegean heritage. Okay? So what we have here, already, even in the 7th century after the Philistines have been in the Levant for 500 years at this point, is worship of a goddess who seems to have roots in the Greek world. Okay? Moreover, the person who dedicates this inscription is a man named Akish. The same as the name of the king of Gath in the stories of David some 300 years or so earlier. I mentioned that that name, Akish, is not a Semitic name. It seems to have roots in the, uh, in the uh, Greek world. And so even after the Philistines have been in, in Ekron for something like 500 years, they are still using Greek names uh, in, as, they, as they name their kids. And this king of Ekron in, in the mid-7th century was named Akish. Okay. So here again we have evidence of, a, uh, of an Aegean heritage among the Philistines, just as the Bible claims um, they had. Okay. Um, then we come to uh, the end of Philistine. Well, it's in this context, as I mentioned, that the stories of uh, Israel's struggles with the Philistines make sense. Okay? Again, I can't prove to you 
that David went to Gath and tried to seek refuge from Saul. Okay? I can say that <clears throat> that doesn't strike me as the kind of story that you would invent, right? Like, if the Philistines are your historic nemesis, would you invent a story in which you're like, your much beloved king, the founder of your dynasty, went and tried to take refuge and even became a member of his army when they were fighting against Israel? That's just not the kind of story that you would invent, okay? It's not the kind of story you would make up. And that tells me that there's a lot of like historical truth in that story, right? Um, uh, so I, I can't prove, though, archaeologically that these stories happen. What, I, what we can say is, based on what we see in archaeology, the stories make sense in their historical context. So I mentioned the ways in which is that pottery, that bichrome pottery starts to expand outside those five Philistine cities. We begin to see it in other places. That indicates that the Philistines are trying to spread out their influence. They're trying to take over lands and regions that they previously had not owned. In fact, lands that had previously been um, controlled by Israelites. What you're looking at here is the Valley of, uh, of Elah. Okay, standing on top of Tel Azekah. This is exactly where the battle of David and Goliath would have happened, right? So simply what I want you to see in this, uh, in this scene, <laughs> there's nothing here that proves David and Goliath happened. All I can say is that it makes sense to have happened based on what we can see from archaeology. Does that make sense? It just fits, okay? It's plausible. Now I'm going to fast forward to the end of Philistine history, okay? Um, so I'm going from... Like here, all the way down to like here. Okay, I'm going to fast forward about 600 years. So far, I've tried to say that the Philistines uh, uh, were immigrants, just as the Bible remembers them. Um, the next thing that the Bible remembers, well, not the next thing. At the end of the Philistines' uh, history in, in, in Israel, they're, just, they're remembered first as having a very, very, very prosperous uh, maritime economy in the late seventh century. So think again, if you, have, if you still have your maps and you flip over to the, to the, Israelite, to the um, Israel side, you can see the city of, of Ashkelon on the southern coast of Israel. It's a port city, right? People are shipping stuff in and out of there all the time. And at the end of the seventh century, that gave rise to a very, very profitable Mediterranean economy. What you're looking at here is a collection of seventh century um, potsherds that all came to Ashkelon from Greece. Uh, up here, over here we have some, uh, this East Street wild goatware over here, this is some rosette bowls. All of this stuff is imported, and that shows the extent to which uh, Ashkelon, this great Philistine city, was playing a key role in the 7th century Mediterranean economy. Stuff is coming in, stuff is going out, and there's all kinds of money to be made. Here's another bit of indication of that. Um, at Ashkelon in the mid-90s, they found this massive royal winery, okay? Uh, and there were at least four different wine presses that had been discovered in this. They were producing way more wine at Ashkelon than they could possibly consume locally. So what are they doing with it? They're putting it in jars, and they're putting it on boats, and they're sending it around the Mediterranean world. They're participating in this great Mediterranean economy. Um, I mentioned uh, the... Um, 
the uh, olive industry at Ekron, that other Philistine city. Uh, Ekron had over a hundred olive oil presses in the seventh century, and they were shipping uh, olive oil all over the Mediterranean world and making bank doing it. Okay? They were supplying the entire ancient Near East with uh, olive oil, and so they were pressing, uh, harvesting and pressing olives at, um, at, at Ekron, putting it in jars, sending it down the road to Ashkelon where they could put it on ships and take it to Egypt or wherever else they wanted to send it. Okay? What's guiding all of this is, um, is the Phoenicians, right? If you ever uh, like read Ezekiel or Jeremiah or uh, certain other biblical texts, the Phoenicians are known as being great seafarers, right? They're always in boats. Uh, and so what you see here is an image of uh, Phoenicians in boats carrying cedars of Lebanon across waters, okay? This is a, a relief from the palace of Korsabad where they're bringing cedars to, um, to, uh, to build a new palace for, uh, for the Assyrian king uh, in, in Nineveh. The king here in view is, is, uh, is Sargon II in the late 8th century. But what I want you to see here is, um, just notice also the detail here. Got some fish. We've got uh, uh, waves and like eddies in the, in the, in the water. Uh, and then the boat, the Phoenician guys, fishing oars, and they're pulling cedars. They've got cedars strapped to the top of the boats. All of this 7th century Mediterranean economy that the Philistines are participating in is fueled by these Phoenician seafarers who are docking their boats at Ashkelon, emptying them to sell stuff to the Philistines and uh, Judahites up in the hills, taking new stuff onto their boats to ship it all across the Mediterranean world. Um, here's an image of them up unloading cedars uh, in, in Korsabad. Here's a Philistine, or, I'm sorry, a Phoenician ship. Uh, an image of, of like what kind of a ship would have been fueling all of this Mediterranean economy. Jars that were, they were being transported around the ancient world. Here's an, an avoid, storage, avoid storage jar. So, uh, jars that are getting ready to be loaded onto a boat. Uh, a Phoenician um, storage jar that you can run a, hand, a wooden handle through so the two guys can carry it kind of on their shoulders like that. Um, just all stuff that speaks to um, this prosperous uh, 7th century economy that Ashkelon and the other Philistine cities were playing a key part in. The Bible talks about this, right? You can read these passages in Ezekiel that um, talk about the Phoenicians and, and tie them to the, to the Philistines uh, and say, although you're so high and mighty right now, you're about to fall. And that's exactly how it goes. So we go from prosperity to destruction very, very quickly. In Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, uh, the prophet foretells the imminent destruction of the Philistine cities. Jeremiah 47, this, I began there because that's where we saw one of those references to the Philistines coming from the land of Kaftor, speaks of the destruction of Philistia and Phoenicia together, right? Why? Because they're totally in cahoots in this economic apparatus until the end of the late 7th century, right? They're getting rich together and they're taking advantage of people doing it. Ezekiel 25, again, tells about the destruction of Philistia and then in the very next chapter, the destruction of Tyre, which is one of the key cities of Phoenicia. So what do we see? We see the Philistines and the Phoenicians at around 7, I don't know, around 625 down to 605, participating in this major Mediterranean economy, getting, making all kinds of wealth, connecting the entire Mediterranean world, fueled by, uh, by Phoenician seafarers who are busy in Philistine cities like Ashkelon, bringing in all kinds of stuff from all over the world, and then instantly they're going to be destroyed. This is an image of one of the tablets of the Babylonian Chronicle, which was written by King Nebuchadnezzar II. Does that name sound familiar to you? It should. He's better known for being the king that destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. 
But about, uh, I don't know, somebody help me with the math. 604, whatever that is. How many years is that? It's okay. 18? 18-ish years. 18 years before he destroys Jerusalem, he destroys Philistia. Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar II in 604 BC campaigns uh, down into, uh, into Philistia, and he just totally demolishes um, the cities of Philistia. In particular, he claims to have leveled Ashkelon. His way writes, Nebuchadnezzar, there should be a parenthesis after that, Nebuchadnezzar marched against the city of Ashkelon and captured it in the month of Kislev. He captured its king and plundered it and carried off spoil from it. He turned the city into a mound, i.e. a tell. And heaps of ruins, and in the month of Sabbat, he marched back to Babylon. Okay, did that happen? It's a little bit fuzzy, but here you see an image of a woman who died in Nebuchadnezzar's campaign into Philistia in Kislev, November, December, 604 BC. She's only one of many people who died in that campaign. She was in the marketplace, she's about 30 years old. Uh, and uh, you can see she's got a jar on her head, right? She didn't die of the jar falling on her head, but um, anthropologists, like physical anthropologists, were able to examine her bones, and they saw that she did die from, like, blunt force trauma. She'd just been hit upside the head several times, so her, like, orbital cavity was all broken in, uh, and so she died uh, heinously by the Babylonian army when they invaded uh, Philistia in 604 B.C., I didn't personally excavate this. This is 1993, so I was all of, what, nine or 10 at the time. But uh, in the summer of 2014, I did excavate um, a marketplace uh, very close to this one, also at Ashkelon, uh, where we had a marketplace. We had a, I was excavating about a 300 square meter excavation area, and there was a street running diagonally through our excavation area. And on one hand, there was a winery, and on the other side, there was a marketplace. In the middle, there was a street. In the summer of 2014, as we excavated through that street, we came down on two bodies uh, who had, were just splayed out just like this, uh, and they had been carrying babies, trying to get out of the city. Archaeology is not normally that um, sensational. I'm sorry, were they married? No. No. So how, how were they? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Um, the archaeology is not normally this dramatic, right? Normally you're digging up a house and, you know, grindstones and these kinds of things. But from time to time, you come upon a layer where you know exactly what happened, exactly who was involved, exactly when it happened, exactly why it happened, and it's just super dramatic. Um, it does not appear that Nebuchadnezzar had any interest in settling Philistia. He did eventually bring in some squatters, you know, to work the fields and so forth. But basically, uh, Ashkelon was uh, uninhabited for the better part of 50 or 60 years. And so uh, I told you how cities, they, they're superimposed one on top of the other. After they destroyed Ashkelon, and they did destroy it. There's nowhere where we've ever dug at Ashkelon where we got to this layer and didn't see destruction. They totally lit the city on fire. Uh, demolished it. Well, it sat abandoned for 50 or 60 years, okay? Uh, and you just see all this windblown sand like, that accumulates on top of the, the destruction remains. Windblown sand coming in from the beach just a few hundred meters away. Uh, you see some evidence thereafter of when, the, when people come back at the end of the 6th century, around uh, 
middle of the 6th century, say around 540 or 535 or so, they come back and they resettle Ashkelon. They're not Philistines anymore, right? The Philistines are basically never heard from again. They're exiled and they're basically just incorporated into the peoples of the ancient Near East. Um, when people come back, they basically just level it all off, right? They just bring just junk in from wherever they can, and they rake all of this stuff up, right? They just throw pottery in on top, so she was never formally buried, okay? She probably just laid exposed there for a long time, okay? Because nobody was there to bury her, okay? Um, and the same was true with the two, the two individuals that I, that I excavated in 2014. They, they were never given a formal burial. But those two individuals were, were particularly dramatic uh, in that they were running down the street trying to get to the coast, trying at the last minute to get out of town. And one of them was found with an arrow in the chest, right? Like we know exactly how they died. Uh, and there were remains of babies, right? Where they, they like, like were trying to get their family out of town, right? Super, super dramatic. Um, and then, as we mentioned, 18 years later, he did basically the same thing to Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem, he goes up to Jerusalem in 596. Uh, so that's a... Eight years later, and he lays siege to Jerusalem, uh, and he basically occupies Jerusalem for about 10 years. There are three waves of exiles of people out of Jerusalem, starting in 596, again in 592, and then 586. Finally, the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back is that uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim rebel against the Babylonian king, and Nebuchadnezzar II comes in and he just destroys Jerusalem, including the temple, uh, and um, sends everybody off to Babylon in exile. Okay. What I've tried to show uh, is that, um, first of all, the Philistines were not uncultured, right? They had beautiful pottery. Um, and, and so the whole Matthew Arnold thing is, uh, has perhaps become influential in our day, but it's perhaps not altogether deserved, right? They, they actually were quite cultured. Uh, they were Greek right, in, in origin, had beautiful pottery, uh, beautiful architecture. Um, second thing I'd like, I, I've tried to show is that... Um, when it comes to the reliability of the Bible, historically, on at least the matter of Philistine history in broad strokes, the Bible seems to remember them pretty accurately, right? Again, I want to underscore, I can't prove to you by archaeology that certain things actually happened, okay? I can't prove that there was a battle of David, David and Goliath. I can't prove that Saul and his three sons were slain on Mount Gilboa, as 1 Samuel 31 says. But I can say that those stories make a lot of sense, given what we can see from the archaeological record. They're plausible, Okay? Third, uh, well, that's the point I just made. Um, the last thing I, I, I should say, and I, I didn't really emphasize this in my talk, but it's worth um, just touching it briefly now, is that when we read prophetic texts, I've mentioned to you texts by Zechariah and Zephaniah and Amos and, um, uh, and Jeremiah. The biblical prophets were working within particular historical and geopolitical moments. So that the oracles that we read that seem just so ahistorical to us, right, actually were very, very often speaking to specific people in specific times at specific places, like their warnings uh, about Phoenicia and, uh, and Philistia. So the pro prophetic texts are best understood. We, we can understand them best when we understand something about their historical and political setting. Uh, and that, in turn, helps us to understand the nature of biblical prophecy. I, I don't for a second ever want to suggest that the biblical prophets never looked into the future to prophesy things that were far off. They did. We know they did. Okay? 
But much, indeed, I would say most, the vast majority of what we have in biblical prophecy isn't so much prophesying the future 500 or 600 years in, in, down the line, so much as it is calling out for righteousness and faithfulness and justice today in light of political and historical and cultural circumstances that their own audience was facing. They're not so much future tellers as they are forth tellers, right? They're, they're forth telling what needs to happen today uh, in order to continue to flourish. Unfortunately, so often people didn't listen to them. <laughs>